to understand data, you really need to understand a domain and a vertical. Okay, welcome back to the Marketing Playbook presented by Details Interactive. Here you'll take away three game-winning marketing plays every episode to take back to your team. I'm your host, Mark Friedman, and my career has been focused on direct-to-consumer marketing, direct mail, physical retail, and digital commerce. This is episode number 12, and today's guest is Faiz Mohamud. Faiz is the co-founder and CEO of BlueCore. Before we get started, a quick thank you, as always, to Max Branstetter of the Wild Business Growth Podcast for producing this episode. You can reach him at max at hippodirect.com to help bring your podcast to life. Let's open the playbook. Ready? Break. Well, hello, everyone. Thank you for joining the Marketing Playbook Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Friedman, and today I have a very special guest. Faiz Mahmood is co-founder and CEO of BlueCore. BlueCore is an AI-driven retail marketing platform that brings together website, customer, and live product insights to match customers with the products they love. By activating dynamic product data for the first time, BlueCore's marketing solution solves the missing piece of the performance puzzle. The ability to respond to customer behaviors with triggered and individualized communication. I've known and worked with Faiz for about seven years, and I'm very happy to have him join us today. Welcome to the Marketing Playbook. Thank you, Mark. Excited to be here. So um, maybe to, to get started here, it's always nice to give the backstory for people. Um, so you know, tell me about the, the story of, of your upbringing and, and kind of how it played a role into the, the position you, you have today at BlueCore. Uh, happy to. So I grew up in uh, Doha, Qatar in the Middle East. Uh, my parents are from India and uh, they moved to Qatar. They moved to Qatar probably in the 70s and I was born and raised there and uh, so were my brothers. So went to school there, uh, was there up until I was 19 years um, and then uh, ended up deciding to move to the U.S. for college when I decided to study engineering. So uh, that's how I got here. That was back in 1999 and uh, been here uh, for a very quick uh, transformative 20 years uh, since then. I would say it's interesting because when I moved here, the goal always was to just study engineering and work at a big company. If you're born in a South Asian family, typically uh, a lot of us think about getting into medicine or getting into engineering, chose engineering because didn't like the idea of being a doctor at the time, uh, which is all about what I thought you could do with medicine at the time. So, um, and uh, engineering was a great place to learn and build a career, but uh, that experience obviously led to a passion for building things up, whether it's technology or companies, which is uh, what I do today at BlueCore. Right. And when you, when you came to the U.S., where did you go to school? I first moved to New Jersey um, and went to a school called New Jersey Institute of Technology, which is also where I happened to meet one of my co-founders, Mahmoud, who ironically has the same first name as, as, as my last name. <laughs> Funny. Uh, yeah. Uh, uh, NJIT, we, we used to call, uh, kiddingly call it uh, NJIT. <laughs> and and it, it's a great school for engineering. How, how did you settle on New Jersey of, you know, of all places in the U.S., New Jersey? It was uh, not a very scientific process. Uh, in 99, we didn't have 
online applications. Uh, we were about six months away from getting our first connection to uh, the internet. So my dad got us a catalog. There's this catalog of American colleges probably doesn't exist today. Um, it's this, you know, 2000 page book uh, with a list of universities in there and sort of how good they were at uh, certain programs like, you know, were you uh, four to five in electrical and computer engineering versus, uh, you know, something else. So I remember looking through that and uh, there were two decisions that went into it. One was, you know, what could we afford because moving abroad to go to university is very expensive. And then my bro older brother was uh, moving to New York City at the time. He went to college upstate in Rochester and pretty much did a triangulation of a university we could afford that was also within um, public transportation's reach out when it came to getting into New York City. That was pretty much it. And that's how I ended up at it, NGIT. That's funny. That college book you're referring to that dates me as as well. The old Barron's uh, book. You know, you had uh, every college in the United States and and even uh, elsewhere, and you just started leafing through it. And if you didn't know where you wanted to go, you opened up and you put your finger down and said, "Yep, yeah, maybe I'll I'll go there." Uh, so I know that book well. Um, so you're an engineer by training. So you 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 get out of school um, with your degree, and then what happens? So I got out of uh, undergrad in 2004, and uh, I was really interested in hardware design at the time, uh, especially designing uh, microprocessors. And uh, in order to specialize in that field, I uh, needed more than an undergraduate degree at the time. So I decided to go to graduate school at uh, Georgia Tech uh, to pursue my passion. And that was you know, two years uh, to get my master's degree, after which I ended up moving to Boston to work at AMD, the chip maker. Um, which is where, you know, I learned a lot of my fundamentals and engineering and things like big data that actually ended up uh, becoming useful later at Bluecore. All right. So as a, as somebody that was interested in, in kind of the hardware side, how does that, you know, how do you get from there to, you know, now running and co-founding a, you know, what basically is a marketing engine? Yeah, it's, it's, it actually has uh, closer connections that than what might appear from the outside. So one of the things um, I did at uh, AMD where we were building microprocessors, uh, designing microprocessors was, you know, Microsoft and Electronic Arts and all these software companies would basically give us their software uh, or what they would be building down the road, um, you know, new games, uh, new operating systems. And I worked on a team called the Performance Modeling Team. And, we basically had to simulate what a system could do and how it would perform. In order to do that, we had to analyze really large amounts of data. This was uh, even before the term big data was coined to actually figure out what happens when you run this next generation game on a next generation yet to be designed system. Um, and you would have to crunch through, you know, terabytes and terabytes of data and days of simulation to you know, simulate what would be essentially a few seconds on a new microprocessor. So that experience actually has a lot to do with uh, what we do in marketing today, which is, you know, understanding large amounts of consumer data that comes in from uh, very different uh, sources, whether it's mobile, whether it's website, uh, what's happening in stores, and then essentially predicting what products customers will be interested in, um, you know, who's likely to engage, who's going to be, who's likely to be your most profitable versus your least profitable customer. There are a lot of the same sort of basic um, 
concepts uh, applied in very, very different ways. Um, so that was probably one aspect of it. The second aspect of it was um, one of my co-founders uh, at the time who happened to be in uh, Boston at the time as well, uh, him and I saw, you know, Apple introduce the iPhone that was back in 2000 and 2007, 2008, and they opened up the developer platform. And sort of this notion of consumer engagement on mobile started to become uh, a thing as well. So we had an app in the early days. Uh, we saw social games sort of come up uh, on Facebook and, you know, games had to get really, really good at engagement and analyzing large amounts of data. So uh, a lot of the thinking behind how to use data to drive relevance and engagement came from both of those experiences. Uh, really interesting. So, you know, as you, um, you know, decided that maybe there was a, a, a void or something in the market that didn't exist. Um, how did you hook up with the two co-founders? What was it about each of your respective uh, core competencies, let's say that, you know, you sat there and said, geez, the three of us uh, will make a good team. So there were a couple of uh, steps in between uh, the time in Boston and uh, starting Blue Core. Um, and each of us had our own sort of journey through it. Uh, I ended up moving to Seattle to join a company uh, in uh, the gamification space. If you remember, gamification loyalty was uh, really hot uh, back in 2010, 2011. Again, the idea was how could you take uh, a lot of these mechanics that games had really uh, developed and use that to drive engagement on brands. And uh, I was working at one company where, you know, we had clients like uh, the NFL, Starbucks, uh, CVS, and so forth. Uh, but it was really, really hard to integrate the data. So that was sort of one experience. Uh, one of my co-founders, Mahmoud, ended up working at uh, an e-commerce company in New York called Moda Operandi. Uh, and it was all about how to use data to determine uh, tastes of you know, folks that were into high-end fashion. And then uh, we ended up moving to New York and met Max, who came from a very different background at Goldman Sachs, sort of uh, with a finance background. And both Mahmoud and I had a technology background, um, no finance, no business backgrounds. Uh, but that's pretty much how the three of us decided to connect and uh, uh, go deep on building uh, Blue Core, which at the time was called Trigger Mail. Right. And so you, you, you get together and, and you're, what, what was the, you know, kind of the, the premise or the hypothesis that, you know, you felt you had some experience, you had some thought processes, what were you trying to solve for uh, with Blue Core? So at the time, this was uh, 2013, the year we were founded, uh, there were a few standalone uh, companies in the email marketing uh, space. Uh, exact Target was one, uh, Responses was another, uh, Neolane was another, uh, you had MailChimp. The term marketing cloud hadn't been coined yet, but this was sort of the first generation of digital where you had these systems that were built to send one message to uh, millions of, or tens of millions of people. And the world was changing pretty dramatically with the rise of digital and commerce where you needed to start thinking about how to analyze data about customers uh, to send different messages to different people, which from a technology perspective was a very, very different problem than what these uh, uh, legacy companies had set out to solve. Uh, so we knew that there was a gap and that gap was, uh, we understood that gap by talking to potential brand customers that were brands that were experiencing that gap and couldn't drive the either the engagement, which 
uh, they needed or the revenue performance, uh, which they saw was declining from sort of these broadcast type of messages. So when we double clicked into that, uh, everything boiled down into how good could you be at ingesting and analyzing data at scale? And that was the insight that led us into, well, to understand data, you really need to understand a domain and a vertical. And we understood very quickly that retail and digital commerce had its own nuances with how the product catalog uh, behaved, how fast it moved, uh, how did the attributes change, what happens when a product goes on sale versus not versus a new product uh, coming in and going out of stock. And we felt that if we made it possible to ingest and analyze that kind of data, then it would become the foundation upon which you could drive customer engagement. But we started with a very, very focused application, which was, hey, how do you make it easy to reduce uh, abandonment and increase conversion? Uh, that was sort of the first application of that concept. All right. And because it was the first application, did you find it challenging to, you know, get in the door? You know, I, I know when I first, you know, started to interact with you guys, I hadn't heard of you. But then when I did talk to your folks, you know, one of the people that worked on my team had had made contact with somebody at a at a conference, you had already had 300 clients. So um, I don't know where I was, but you know, you were starting to build a business. Did, did you have trouble getting in the door to try and communicate to people, this is what we're going to be able to do for you? Uh, yes, absolutely. In probably at least half of the cases. So generally speaking from uh, where the market stood at that point, uh, a lot of brands looked at us and thought, Oh, interesting. Trigger mail. Yes, I know what it does, but it sounds like a feature, right? Uh, it, it's a feature inside of a bigger product like a marketing cloud. And uh, that was true. If you thought that the potential of real-time messaging was, you know, maybe one or 2% of your email volume, message volume, and uh, less than 10% of your revenue. Now that was about to change because uh, the amount of consumer behavior, uh, first party data that was that was increasing would basically change the ratio of automated uh, behavioral messaging versus sort of the broadcast messaging. So there were folks who thought that the existing system would do a good job where it was hard to communicate the value proposition. On the other hand, there were uh, the early adopters, right? Uh, if you go by Jeffrey Moore's uh, crossing the chasm concept that knew that the next generation of messaging would be extremely difficult to do on incumbent systems. Uh, and they were looking for sort of the best of breed solution. Uh, and we got really good traction fast uh, with amazing brands um, uh, through that. So once we understood that, uh, we started focusing on who had the pain point, who had sort of the most hanging uh, on the table in terms of them being able to drive business impact through our product. And once we focused on that, uh, things started to pick up pretty quickly. How, were, how did you guys fund your business initially? Uh, we decided for the first six months to bootstrap with, you know, both uh, uh, Mahmoud, Max and I had uh, worked for a few years and we said, hey, let's let's see how this thing goes for six months uh, based on the savings we had in the bank at the time. Uh, and then uh, we joined an incubator program called Techstars uh, in 2013. And uh, uh, within uh, three months, we ended up uh, getting a seed round of funding uh, at the time that was uh, led by First Mark Capital that's based in New York. They've invested in uh, a lot of great companies like Shopify and Envision, uh, and they have a thesis uh, with uh, direct-to-consumer businesses as well, uh, businesses like Brooklyn. And so they ended up investing in us uh, and have followed in, in every round since then. 
That's uh, that's great. Uh, sometimes you know, the bootstrap is is oftentimes the way that uh, these businesses get started. Um, so at, now you've you've got a business, you've got a concept. Um, you know, I, I hear very often from you know providers. You know, we don't really know who to sell into, depending upon the particular business. You could be selling into the marketing teams. You could be you know, selling into the IT teams. How, how does a business like yours kind of get the lay of the land and know where best to sell? Yeah, this has definitely evolved over the years. Um, but uh, at the end of the day, you know, we like to say that a solution or a product actually has no inherent value unless it solves a business problem. And in our case, the business problem is almost always owned by either the uh, marketing team or uh, in some cases, uh, a CRM team. Uh, they're the ones who have onus for driving relevance, uh, driving personalization, uh, driving ultimately revenue and repeat purchase rates. And the technology teams are a big part of enabling it, but they usually have different uh, business goals that they're driving after. Uh, so it's almost always uh, the marketing teams that we are uh, entering the conversation with because they have the business problem and the value. Even when we sell advanced use cases, using artificial intelligence and predictive analytics. Uh, it may involve a lot of conversations with the data science teams and the analytics teams, but ultimately we're doing all of this to drive the business and marketing uh, has the onus for acquiring and retaining customers, which is, and we help mostly with retention um, and a little bit of acquisition, both, both within that marketing domain. Right. And, and that's, that's helpful. And, and as you know, time has progressed, um, you know, with the business and you started to build uh, more tools out for marketers, which I'd like to elaborate on in a bit, but, you know, when you start to look at from the very beginning, you know, you were deploying emails for companies through these triggers, but you were not viewing yourself, I believe, from my perspective as an email service provider. Is that fair to say? Yes, that's totally fair to say. And um, even today, there's the notion of what an email service provider is that's being very quickly redefined by sort of the infrastructure uh, level sending uh, players like a SendGrid and a SparkPost, for example. Right. So um, if you get, then go back to the beginning, so you you didn't look at yourself as an email service provider and not speaking at a school, I, I think that my understanding of, of that whole relationship is you needed to rely to some degree on good, strong relationships, not competitive relationships with the more traditional email service providers. And um, although I'm sure you still have those great relationships, you have evolved your, your business and you're now offering those services um, to customers, correct? That is correct. Uh, in very close relationship. Um, in some cases, uh, with uh, uh, a SendGrid or a SparkPost, and in other cases, uh, if we coexist with uh, one of the bigger marketing clouds. But you're absolutely right. Right, and you know, one of the challenges that you know I had faced as as much as we liked the product was the interaction with whomever we were using as the ESP. You know, doing work in in BlueCore, um, especially on predictive, and I'd like you to talk about that, and then getting that information, you know, into our ESP and and making it work kind of you know uh, fluently. Are are those challenges fewer and far between now as you become a more uh, not substantial, but a, a more mature product? Yes, absolutely. And at the end of the day, it's it's whatever the brands and the customers uh, wanted uh, when we look at uh, what folks were asking us for. Um, and then the second piece is, um, 
what's happening in the in the traditional ESP market is that there's a set of capabilities that used to exist in a few different systems that are now starting to converge. Uh, one way we like to look at it is uh, uh, the notion of audience management uh, versus campaign management um, and execution. And uh, those used to historically be considered very, very different capabilities. They had their own um, you know, uh, Gartner quadrants and so forth. But with the ability for us to bring data together, analyze it really quickly, and then execute campaigns really fast, our point of view is that they should really be one system, right? So it was less about who becomes the ESP, which, uh, you know, from a pure message sending perspective, uh, we work very closely with the SendGrid uh, in order to be able to do that. But all of the intelligence and the workflows and the predictions uh, and the ability to segment and react uh, in real time to these messages needed to happen in a system, uh, in a next generation system like Bluecore. So that was the insight that led us to say, hey, this is, this is what customers are asking for in order to drive performance and not drive volume. So that was one part of it. The second part of it is if you think about the business model, this is probably where it comes to head the most. All of the last generation providers get compensated the more messages you send. So fundamentally, the more messages you send, what allows you to send more messages is the less relevant you are, right? Uh, because conversions are lower and then you got to send more to make up uh, the difference. So we also felt that building on top of systems that get incentivized for sending more is not going to ultimately drive the best performance for the brand and the consumer, uh, which was the other reason why we decided to go into that. So it was less about, hey, let's become a full stack ESP and more about how do we drive more performance and relevance and be incentivized to the consumer and the brand. Right. And, and so again, progression of your business and, and service offerings, um, you know, we spent a bunch of time using your predictive capability. So talk a little bit about predictive, um, how to create, you know, how you're creating or helping uh, retailers create audiences, be more relevant. And then, you know, love to hear about, you know, some of the more recent introductions of, of products that you've uh, put out to the market. Yes, uh, absolutely. So when we look at our product strategy, uh, we look at it from the lens of what investments can we make that are going to drive uh, relevance um, and performance. And uh, that performance comes in the form of uh, a few business outcomes. Uh, it's not just revenue at, at, at the top because you could argue that, you know, there's different ways to measure that and who gets credit on the system for driving revenue based on where you are in the consumer interaction process. Uh, the second are business outcomes, like how many repeat purchases do you get? Uh, how many customers that are at risk did we uh, re-engage and so forth? So when it comes to answering those types of questions, the data that we collect, uh, which is all first party opt-in data from consumers around what products are they engaging with? What is the lifetime value of a customer and uh, how can you use that to make sure that they stay on your customer list for a long time? All of those present opportunities for uh, machine learning and predictive analytics to uh, help drive outcomes on in the form of audiences and campaigns. So because we are focused uh, purely on uh, brands that are going direct to consumer, both traditional brand and next generation brands, we can now focus very deeply on retail specific uh, predictive models, things that predict churn, lifetime value, category affinity, 
uh, offer and discount affinity and so forth and make it easy for marketers to basically try out different types of models in their audiences and campaigns. So that's that's been great. And again, our philosophy is not that our model is better than another model that might exist out there. It's to reduce the barrier to testing and learning as quickly as possible in order to drive the best performance. Um, so that's, that's worked great. Uh, about over 60% of our customers uh, now use some sort of at least one or more predictive sort of audience filters to run their campaigns, which is awesome. Uh, so that was one aspect of it. The next part of it was thinking through, well, what happens when somebody clicks on a message through email? Where do they land? Well, they land on a website. Uh, if you don't optimize the path, that path for conversion, uh, you're leaving both relevance and conversion on the table, which is why we introduced Blue Horse Site uh, that allows uh, brands uh, to continue the optimization process through the, through the website as well. Yeah. And so Blue Course Site, um, that's a new product. Can you talk about, you know, uh, perhaps a, an example of a client that, you know, that started with triggers, um, was doing some predictive and has now um, gone to, you know, helping to optimize the site uh, with, uh, with that new product and, you know, the, the benefits that they're seeing? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I was looking at uh, uh, one of our earliest customers uh, that, uh, you know, started uh, first on uh, triggers, uh, then uh, moved on to BlueCore as a full stack uh, uh, messaging uh, and communications platform through BlueCore Communicate, which is our uh, full ESP product. Uh, and then they decided to uh, opt into BlueCore site, which increased uh, their list capture by uh, about 15 to 20%. Um, and also now started uh, uh, driving conversions through the recommendations we're powering on the website. One of the things that BlueCore does uh, in the email is determine what is the next best purchase uh, for a for an individual customer uh, based on both uh, predictive characteristics we know from what we've collected and based on uh, what's trending on the website uh, and now we can power that same uh, sort of module on the on the on the website as well uh, so that's one example today about uh, 25 customers use blue core site uh, within uh, about a year of it being introduced in market and we work uh, today with about 400 brands. So uh, that's a tremendous amount of growth uh, while we're still in the early days with it. And are you seeing anything that would help um, marketers? You know, I, I know in the businesses that I've been involved with and the ones that I'm consulting with, you know, we're continuing to see this, you know, organically, you know, uh, increase in, in, in traffic uh, to mobile devices, you know, most of us are not doing anything necessarily to move the traffic there. It's just happening. And also uh, on the mobile device, generally speaking, you see a, a much lower conversion rate than on desktop. Um, oftentimes you see a lower average order, especially for those businesses that have high units per order. So is, is BlueCore in any way um, specifically helping those businesses with their mobile channel? So uh, today we make it possible, as easy as possible, to collect uh, mobile data when it comes to all the things that you mentioned. Um, so that's sort of the first part of it. Uh, the second part of it is uh, email has proven to be remarkably adaptable. And a lot of us like to think of it as this channel that exists outside of your mobile channels. But you know, when you're on your phone and you see that uh, email that is right next to your uh, SMS that is right next to your push notification, you know, in that list, like, is it 
is it really an email? Is it a mobile notification as far as the consumer is concerned? Uh, it's, it's another entry point into engaging with your brand. So, so that's one way we uh, sort of naturally help. Uh, in other or in other ways, um, you know, we're looking. We want to be best in class at audience management and email campaign management, and we're looking to partner with folks that have done a tremendous job uh, on the mobile side uh, as of now. Uh, the other thing you mentioned, uh, even though conversions and average order values uh, might be lower, my hypothesis is that that's going to continue to change uh, because a lot of the payment gateway providers. Uh, uh, Apple Pay and PayPal are making it easier and easier to buy on mobile, which certainly has changed my behavior. I'm finding myself buying from uh, many other brands that I historically didn't used to buy from, and not just Amazon, because the payments uh, process was typically the biggest friction. Uh, and when that continues to go away, I think we're going to start to see more and more uh, metrics improve on mobile. Uh, interesting. That's uh, certainly the payment gateways um, uh, do make it a little bit simpler. So that that's that's really helpful. You know, there's there's so many, um, if we can use the term retail marketing platforms, you know, throughout MarTech and, and ad tech. So, you know, when you think about uh, the others that are out there, you may or may not compete with them um, head to head, but certainly you compete with them in in the purview of the marketer and the IT people in a, in a team, because there's only so many things I could assimilate as a marketer at any moment in time. I have blue core coming at me. I have a hundred other emails and phone calls. So how, who else do you watch um, in the MarTech and ad tech space as, as really starting to percolate and help brands? Yeah. You know, I think two parts to that uh, question. One is, um, you know, retail marketing uh, and marketing tech uh, may seem crowded, uh, but the reality is that software as a service, as an industry, is very, very crowded and growing extremely fast, right? So we may think that there's, you know, five or 7,000 companies in the space, but the reality is that, you know, the market is owned by, you know, 20, 30, sometimes 40 year old technology companies that, you know, are running on premise software that are not built for a data first world. And if you're a retailer or a brand, you really need to be thinking about, you know, what, what is the absolute truth is that the next generation of digital is not going to be powered by those incumbents that were built back then, right? So then the question becomes, well, who do you bet on as your sort of next generation foundational uh, piece of technology? And our point of view is that, uh, you know, there's not going to be one system that owns it all, which is what a lot of marketing technology companies preach, but there's going to be best of breed applications that allow you to quickly drive business outcomes at the speed and pace at which your business moves. So that's, that's how we think about it. I think uh, there's uh, uh, com companies that uh, come to mind uh, are folks like, uh, you know, Brazen New York, that's doing really, really well in terms of next generation uh, tech. Uh, they have a strong DNA in mobile. Uh, Movable Inc. comes up. Uh, they've done a phenomenal job uh, starting with email, now optimizing into other channels. Uh, but I, personally don't view it as like one winner taking it all. It's, it's early days uh, at this point. The devil's in the details. You've probably heard that phrase time and time again in your professional life. Projects get started with great intentions, but you no longer have the time to pay attention to the little things that can make the difference between success and failure. At Details Interactive, you can discuss your business with a seasoned direct-to-consumer marketing executive who has helped launch and grow web businesses and integrate multi-channel marketing initiatives. Learn more at detailsinteractive.com. 
and the the marketing clouds you know that are out there you know there's some prominent ones adobe and and salesforce for example do you see yourself ultimately fitting well with them as you know long term or are you just you know they're they're so i don't want to say old school but they are from the old school and you're from not the old school yeah i think uh you know, we think about less about fitting with them than, you know, how are we going to fit in with our customers, right? Because ultimately, I think that's what's going to determine who wins and prevails in, in the long run. Uh, and then the way we think about it, again, going back to the premise on performance is, do these systems have an incentive, these marketing clouds, to drive performance and relevance? In a lot of cases, uh, it's not the case. It's kind of, uh, you know, similar to the first sort of uh, evolution of software as a service, right? Uh, uh, when Salesforce came about and said, hey, you know, I'm going to reinvent uh, uh, customer relationship management software and you don't have to buy on-premise software. You can sign up and you can sort of pay as you go and, um, and, and get quick value out of it. We find that in an intelligence and AI driven world, performance-based businesses uh, will win in the, in the long run. And if we believe that that's true, uh, it's less about the technology and more about how do these companies shift to that mindset and will they have to completely retool their technology uh, in order to get there? And uh, we, you know, most of these companies uh, have been pieced together through acquisitions and systems that were originally never built to work with each other, right? Uh, and they've made a lot of progress in some cases, integrating them well, in a lot of cases not. It's, it's a hard question to answer. So ultimately, the easier question to answer is how do we make brands perform, right? Uh, and make customers successful. And if we continue to do that, and if we can objectively show that, uh, we'll, we'll continue to win. Right. Good segue to, to question about customers. Um, I read an article um, that you wrote a while back where you said that before launching BlueCore, I wish I had known that my most skeptical, demanding customers would become our best advocates. Um, and, and as I was reading it, I made myself a note here. I said, you know, if I did not, if I didn't know any better, I would have thought that you were describing me. <laughs> Talk about your customers and how you do or you don't, I'm guessing you do, rely on their feedback to uh, you know, help you become a better company? It's the most, uh, most important thing, uh, going back to one of your earlier questions, which was, you know, how do we find the right type of customers that actually care? And when we say care, it's not care about Blue Core or the product, it's more about who cares the most about their business and their business outcomes. And we want to find ourselves attaching ourselves to those types of customers, whether it's people and how they think about uh, uh, being the change agents inside of their businesses or brands that have a DNA to be forward thinking to begin with. And uh, when they care, there's a business outcome that they're going after. And uh, typically those are the folks that are the most demanding and are going to be the ones challenging you the most. Uh, and uh, when we deliver, uh, there are also the biggest advocates, right? So I see the most challenging, demanding customers and uh, advocates as uh, different sides of the same coin. Uh, I think a lot of folks think of them uh, as two separate things and uh, I don't, it couldn't be farther from the truth. Uh, the customers you hear from the least were kind of okay with the status quo. They're probably okay with the status quo on a lot of things and not the ones that'll move you forward. In terms of your second question, how do we, how do we take feedback? Uh, we have, uh, uh, three places where we get uh, feedback from one uh, or input into our product strategy rather uh, one is our customer success team that you know day in and day out works with a lot of our customers and they're able to distill uh, sort of the most common things that come from the field 
uh, that coupled with uh, our product marketing teams that are always looking at uh, you know where the market is headed and what are sort of the needs of the next generation of direct consumer retail. Uh, we have um, uh, an advisory board of uh, customers, both uh, senior executives who have big business outcomes to go after, but also folks that operate the business day to day. Uh, we host a Blue Core uh, Summit every year where there's user groups and sessions where we not just hear what they say, which is, you know, which is one part of it, but observe what they need to accomplish. And then the third one, which is probably the hard, hardest, is uh, does that align with where we think the world will be in, in a few years, right? Uh, because uh, a lot of times the most straightforward requests are solutions to problems that may not exist a few years from now. And how do we reimagine uh, a new way to do things that will be relevant down the road? Uh, and that's really what our product and technology teams focus on, on doing to make sure that what we're building is here um, and, and relevant, at least for the next few years with the pace at which uh, things are changing. Uh, but listening to key customers is a, is a big part of that. And especially in a in uh, a business like ours where we focus on big enterprise customers. We work with we work with hundreds of customers, not thousands or tens of thousands. Uh, every opinion matters a lot. All right. So the, the other side of it of of having, you know, good customers is is having a great team. And, you know, I've been very fortunate because all of the folks, and, and this is not an understatement, all of the folks uh, at Blue Corps that I've uh, been involved with, and it's at, at two different stops uh, in my career, um, have been outstanding uh, to work with. So, you know, kudos uh, to you guys for that. But how, how do you hire, you know, you know, in, in, in New York City, which is where you're based, you know, the competition for good uh, Technologists is is pretty fierce. Um, customer service managers and and the customer success managers and all the other roles. How do you hire? What's your involvement in in hiring? Um, give us some flavor. Yeah, it's a uh, it's uh, it's top of mind for everybody who's um, got a lot of growth to do, and it's actually more similar to finding uh, the early adopter customers uh, than anything else because you're not coming to a high growth earlier stage company, uh, even though we're not as early as, uh, you know, when we met back in the day, to have it easy, right? Uh, there's never enough time. There's never enough resources. Customers always want more than, uh, you know, you can provide. Um, and the trade-off uh, for that, that kind of sacrifice is that you grow faster, right? Uh, you may get several gray hairs or uh, lose some hairs in the process like, like me, but uh, you get growth in exchange for that, right? So number one is, are folks geared up to do that right now? We uh, have the benefit of, uh, you know, having uh, balance, you know, at times, especially working in retail, that can be hard, uh, but you want to have to grow. Uh, that's number one. Second is uh, you have to be coachable uh, in terms of always wanting to learn uh, as opposed to wanting to know or wanting to be the best, uh, uh, the smartest person in the room. Um, so that goes a lot into our hiring profile. And then uh, the third is you have to believe in winning uh, with the team. And uh, that's, that may sound like cliche, but literally winning with uh, the team in terms of business outcomes and the equity you have in the company, right? Because that ultimately that's how uh, everyone gets uh, rewarded financially in the long run, uh, as opposed to near term compensation, which is, you know, where a lot of the bigger companies focus on. So just like finding, you know, that ideal customer profile, it changes based on the stage of the company. Uh, but those three traits, uh, you know, pretty much hold true uh, up until the time we, uh, you know, go public and uh, start operating at a much, much bigger scale than we are today. Going public. Okay. You heard it here, folks. Uh, first, folks, uh, that you're going public. <laughs> you're the, the CEO. W what's your job? How do you, you know, we can look at titles, but what do you do on a day-to-day -day basis to, to move your company forward? 
Changes probably every six to nine months based on the phase of the company. I'd say at this point, uh, it is uh, uh, one, making sure that our vision is up to date and accurate and everybody knows where we're headed. Uh, that's one. Second is making sure that uh, we have the financial resources to go and accomplish what we need to do. We are a venture-backed company. Uh, we've grown extremely fast. And uh, you know, right now we have a sizable customer base that is uh, financing our growth, but we also have uh, investors uh, that are doing it. So thinking about you know, how much do we invest uh, and uh, how fast do we grow is always top of mind. And uh, recruiting and retaining folks, going back to hiring people, right? Uh, uh, thinking through, you know, if folks are coming here to grow uh, at a pace that is faster than going somewhere else, then I need to make sure that we're delivering on it, right? So how are we thinking through development programs? How are we thinking through, you know, compensation, equity philosophy, things of that nature to make sure that people can do what they do best uh, and we're rewarding them for it, uh, uh, mainly in terms of development. Well, your, your story is fascinating. You're a fascinating guy, and I appreciate you joining me uh, today. Um, in, the, uh, in the podcast show here, as we get to the end, I do a two-minute drill, uh, kind of keeping with the theme of, uh, of the playbook. Um, I have a bunch of questions, uh, just quick answers if you uh, would be willing to, okay? Sure. All right. So a brand that you admire or that inspires you? Nike. Favorite app on your phone? Calm because I just got into meditation. <laughs> okay, I've heard that one before. I might have to try that one out. Uh, the last website other than Amazon that you shopped from? Columbia. Something that you're not good at, but that you wish that you were? It's a long list, uh, but uh, I would say giving appropriate recognition as fast as I can. When somebody does great work, I focus on the next thing. Charitable organization that you're passionate about? I work with uh, the Organization of Rare Diseases, which is not uh, a charitable foundation, but uh, you know, it's dedicated towards giving uh, back to folks uh, that have rare diseases because my brother had one. Okay, thank you. Uh, and then last one, um, if you had one superpower, what would it be? Oh, to read what's on people's mind because I often get it wrong. Mm, okay. How does that work with your wife? He <laughs> <laughs> won't answer that question. Um, so th this was great. Um, tell uh, our listeners where they could reach out to you on social media if you're, uh, if you're cool with that. Yes, absolutely. Uh, my name is pronounced like uh, fries without the R, so you can find me on Twitter at sideoffies.com. Or side of Fies as the handle. I mean, <laughs> that's fun. no, I got so anyway. This was great, Fies. Thank you very much for uh, for doing this. Uh, continued success to you and and all the folks at Blue Core, and uh, look forward to seeing you soon. Awesome, thank you, Mark. This was a lot of fun. Appreciate you having me on this. All right, take care. See you soon. That's it. Today's game ball goes to Fies Moamud for coming on the marketing playbook. To me, today's three game-winning marketing plays were as follows. So many of the basic concepts of managing your customers, who are the best ones you have and how to speak with them to drive more revenue, were created years ago through the direct mail business. They're not new concepts. We don't have to recreate the wheel. Choose the metrics that are most important to your business, create tactics that will help you achieve those goals, and put tools in place to help you measure your performance. Number two, sophisticated analytical tools like BlueCore are helpful but only if the user company buys it with a clear understanding of the needs that will develop once you have it in place. You'll need someone internally to own it, 
and to be able to create new content and messaging to support the findings that you'll have. New tools create new work, and strangely, some brands do not prepare for this fact. And number three, whether it be your own position or your relationship with your providers, don't be afraid to initiate change and to challenge those providers, your colleagues, and yourself. Demonstrate a willingness to listen and to learn, and continuously look for ways to improve both your soft and technical skills. You need to be geared up to grow, you have to be coachable, but you don't have to be the smartest person in the room to be successful. You have to want to win with the team. Thank you, Playbook Marketers, for listening to another episode. If you want to check out more pages of the Marketing Playbook, make sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast spot and leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. You can also follow us on Twitter, at Details Interact, and learn more at DetailsInteractive.com. Until next time, the devil is in the details. Details.